You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 293, Isaac Hayne. Last week, we discussed the efforts of the South Carolina militia to keep the British and Loyalists trapped in and around Charleston, South Carolina, denying them access to the rest of the state. This week, I want to take a look at an incident in British-occupied Charleston around this same time, the summer of 1781, which became a major point of contention in the war. Isaac Hayne was a member of the South Carolina planner class. His family had lived in South Carolina for three generations, and he owned a substantial plantation and other properties. Born in 1745, Hayne had shown relatively little interest in politics or the military before the Revolution began. He was connected to some of the most elite families in South Carolina. In 1765, he married Elizabeth Hudson, whose brother served in the Continental Congress and later became lieutenant governor of the state. Hayne himself did serve briefly in South Carolina's Royal Assembly, beginning in 1770, but really didn't seem to take much interest in the debates of the day. In 1777, Hayne learned that he had been elected to the new General Assembly, even though he hadn't been aware he was under consideration. Quite simply, he was more interested in running his plantation. As a major landowner, Hayne was expected to serve as an officer in the local militia. He was a captain in 1776 when the British threatened to invade Charleston. Captain Hayne brought his militia company to Charleston at that time, where they helped repair defenses, but he did not engage in any of the combat. Like most people in South Carolina, as the revolution raged to the north, Hayne went about his life running his plantation and investing in an iron foundry. The foundry later became a supplier of cannonballs for the Charleston artillery, and years afterwards, when the British recaptured the colony, Colonel Bannister Tarleton raided, looted, and destroyed the foundry. Now, Hayne was still a militia captain in 1780 when the British returned and captured Charleston. He was not in Charleston when the city fell, but he did disband his militia and went home after the British captured the city. A short time later, Hayne traveled to Charleston to get some medicine after his family contracted smallpox. He simply traveled as a neutral private citizen to buy medicine for his wife and child. While in Charleston, Hayne was detained and brought before Brigadier General James Patterson, who informed Hayne that he must take an oath of allegiance to the king or be imprisoned. Despite his reluctance, Hayne's desire to return to his home with the needed medicine compelled him to sign the Declaration of Allegiance to the King. A part of the document obligated him to take up arms in support of the royal government if necessary. Hayne told others at the time that General Patterson and other officers assured him that this would not be an issue, that he would not be called on to serve in the Loyalist militia. Hayne returned to his home, where his wife died of smallpox shortly afterward. As the war in South Carolina grew in 1780 and 81, 
Hain continued to resist calls for him to rejoin the Patriot militia, as other officers had done. In April of 1781, Colonel William Hardin brought Hain a colonel's commission signed by Francis Marion, calling on him to raise a local Patriot regiment and join the fight. Hain refused to accept the commission and even refused to provide horses for the Patriot militia, citing his obligation under his oath of allegiance. Around the same time, British officials were also trying to coerce him into accepting a commission in the Loyalist militia, threatening imprisonment and confiscation of his plantation if he refused. Hain was an important man in the area, and his decisions would impact the decisions of hundreds of other men in the local militia. After the Patriots retook control of the area around the Hain plantation, Hain received more pressure to take the commission. It became clear to him that he had to pick a side. The Patriots were also threatening to imprison him and confiscate his property if he refused to join. Hain finally accepted Colonel Marion's commission and raised a regiment of about 200 men. The militia disrupted supply lines and communications between Lord Ralden's army in Camden and later Orangeburg and the main British command in Charleston. As Colonel Hain led his militia, he received orders to capture Andrew Williamson. Before the war, Williamson had been another South Carolina plantation owner, but further west on the frontier, near Fort 96. He had led Patriot militia against the Cherokee in 1776, and also fought at Briar Creek, Stono Ferry, and other skirmishes. He also served under General Lincoln at the Siege of Savannah. Williamson was serving as a militia general by 1780. Now, in his case, when the British took Charleston, William also took parole and signed an oath of allegiance. Like Hain, he remained on his plantation, trying to remain neutral. As with Hain, neither side would accept his neutrality. Williamson eventually fled the Patriots and made his way to British-occupied Charleston. Williams's high rank and his decision to seek protection led many to call Williamson the Benedict Arnold of the South. Now, unlike Arnold, Williamson did not become an active military leader for the British. He settled on a plantation just outside of Charleston, but within British lines. It was near where Haynes' militia was active. They were tasked with trying to capture Williamson and bring him back to the Patriots for trial. On the night of July 5, 1781, Hain led a nighttime attack on Williamson's plantation. The mounted militia surrounded the home and took him by surprise. Almost immediately, the British dispatched Major Thomas Fraser to recover Williamson. Three days later, Fraser's mounted militia raided Haines' camp near Horseshoe, a few miles from Parker's Ferry. The Patriot militia managed to fight off the attack and keep Williamson prisoner, but somehow Fraser learned that Hain was away from his regiment staying at the nearby Woodford Plantation. There, Hain was having breakfast with his second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas McLaughlin, when Loyalist militia raided the home. The men leapt to their horses and attempted to escape, but the mounted Loyalist militia were too fast and managed to capture their prey, killing McLaughlin and taking Hain prisoner. Fraser brought Hain back to Charleston, where the colonel was imprisoned in the city jail. He remained there for several weeks, while his captors considered his fate. In command at Charleston was Lieutenant Colonel Nisbet Balfour. In his mid-thirties, Balfour was an experienced officer. The son of a Scottish laird, Balfour received an ensign's commission at age 17. By 1770, he had risen to captain. Balfour was injured in the assault on Bunker Hill in 1775. 
he recovered in time to fight in the New York Campaign of 1776 and the Philadelphia Campaign of 1777. After the British evacuated Philadelphia in 1778, Balfour returned home on sick leave, by this time a lieutenant colonel. He returned to America in time to participate in the British capture of Charleston in 1780, and there he received command of Fort 96, where he was part of Patrick Ferguson's effort to raise an army of Loyalist militia. The men raised an army of over 4,000 Loyalists, and it was about this time that Balfour got to know Andrew Williamson, the former militia general whose plantation was only a few miles from Fort 96. After General Cornwallis left Charleston for Camden in what began his lengthy chase of Nathaniel Green across the Carolinas, he assigned command of Charleston to Balfour. As commander, Balfour attempted to maintain order with a certain firmness. In August of 1780, he ordered 30 known patriots in Charleston arrested and exiled to St. Augustine so that they could no longer plot further insurrection against South Carolina. All of these men had been on parole and appeared to be complying with the terms of parole. In June 1781, he ordered the removal of all wives and children of Patriot soldiers who had been captured and exchanged. Balfour confiscated the property of these expelled families, leaving them destitute and dependent on the charity of others for survival. He also placed prisoners on prison ships in Charleston Harbor. The heat and miserable conditions aboard the ships resulted in many of them dying in agony. In an attempt to force General Green to accept a prisoner exchange, Balfour threatened to ship his prisoners to the West Indies, where the remainder would almost certainly die. On multiple occasions, Balfour sought permission to execute prisoners who were found guilty of atrocities. His commanders, aware that this would result in reprisals against British prisoners held by the Americans, regularly denied these requests. Also in Charleston at this time was Lord Ralden. In July, Ralden had left his command in Orangeburg and was trying to recover his health enough to take a ship back to Britain. Ralden and Balfour had known each other for years. Like Balfour, Ralden had been wounded at Bunker Hill. Balfour held seniority over the two and was a decade older than Ralden. But Cornwallis had left overall command of South Carolina to Ralden, which led to a little tension between the two officers. In May of 1781, Balfour and Green agreed to a cartel for the exchange of prisoners. The cartel, however, only applied to prisoners captured through June 15th. Hayne had been captured on July 8th. Balfour was feeling increasing pressure from the Patriot raids around Charleston, and he thought making some examples might discourage more people from taking up arms with the Patriot militia. Major Edmund Hayne of the Continental Army came to Charleston on General Green's behalf in June of 1781. He found that Balfour refused to release six officers covered by the cartel because Balfour wanted to try them as criminals. Two of the prisoners were to be tried for taking up arms after taking the oath of allegiance. On July 26th, Hayne received a note saying that he would be the subject of a, quote, court of inquiry the following morning. This was the same method that the Patriot had used a year earlier to convict and hang British Major John Andre. Balfour conferred with Ralden, who seemed to believe that the only thing necessary to confirm was that Ralden had taken the oath and had afterward taken up arms. Everything else was irrelevant. Ralden was used to the brutality going on in the South Carolina fighting. 
He had personally ordered the hanging of numerous people without trial who were suspected of participation in the rebellion. In Haynes' case, he was given the right to an attorney. He chose one, but the attorney could not be found, so the proceeding went on without him. Haynes could have called witnesses, but did not do so. He did not have access to any of them, and he also assumed that he could do so later when he was tried at a court-martial after the Court of Inquiry. The Court of Inquiry met on June 27th and 28th. There's no record from the hearing, but a witness later reported that it was pretty much just a confirmation that Hain had taken the oath of allegiance and confirming that he had taken up arms afterwards. The following day, Sunday, July 29th, Hain received a notice informing him that the board had resolved that he would be executed on Tuesday, July 31st at 6 a.m. Suddenly realizing that there would be no more hearings, Haynes quickly summoned his attorney, who drafted and delivered a brief that same day, explaining why Hain had been denied due process and demanding a real trial. The brief noted that Hain had not been informed of the charges against him. He had thought the hearing was to determine whether he was a spy. It also noted that, as a prisoner of war, he could not be executed unless found to be a spy. Since he was not in the British military he could only face capital punishment after conviction by a jury of his peers. The hearing against Hain was unlawful and did not justify execution. Balfour responded the following day, informing Hain that he was not being executed based on any sentence from the court of inquiry. Instead, Balfour was simply ordering his execution on his own authority as military commander of South Carolina. Hain then requested that the sentence be delayed so that he could send for his children and say goodbye. This was also denied, but after Lieutenant Governor William Bull and others intervened, Balfour offered a reprieve of 48 hours. Petitions for mercy rolled in almost immediately, but Balfour denied all of them. To those who spoke with him, he indicated that he felt this was payback for the execution of John Andre. Hain then received a second 48-hour delay just hours before his second scheduled execution. On Friday evening, August 3rd, Hain received a note saying, quote, The many cruelties exercised upon numerous officers and men of the British militia, extending even to death in many instances an hour after capture, have induced Lord Ralden and the Commandant to order his execution may take place tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. That evening, Hain was permitted a meeting with the three of his children who had gotten to Charleston in time. The following morning, a guard marched him behind a wagon carrying his coffin to the place of execution, which was about a mile away, just outside the city limits. He was placed on a wagon, a noose was put around his neck, the wagon was pulled away, and within minutes, Colonel Hain was dead. South Carolina had been the scene of many executions of enemy combatants. Even so, the hanging of Isaac Hain became a particular rallying point for the Americans. Part of it may have been Colonel Haynes' rank. It was probably also due to the fact that he was hanged in Charleston rather than simply out in the field following a battle. Whatever the case, the incident drew international attention. Hale became known as the Nathan Hale of the South, referencing the Connecticut officer who was hanged as a spy in New York back in 1776. It reinforced views that the British were bloodthirsty tyrants who ruled by terror. All of this led to calls for General Greene to retaliate. On August 20th, a few weeks after Haynes' execution, all of Greene's Continental officers signed a letter requesting that Greene, quote, 
retaliate in the most effectual manner. Green wrote to Colonel Balfour, demanding an explanation for Haynes' execution and threatening immediate retaliation unless Balfour could provide some legitimate justification. Despite the angry words, Green was loath to take immediate action. For starters, he was in the middle of a prisoner exchange and wanted to be sure that he received his promised prisoners before an act of retaliation might spur the British to respond to that retaliation with even more brutality toward their prisoners. There was also the difficult decision about executing an innocent officer for the wrongful actions of others. Some Continentals argued that the Loyalist general who Hain had captured, and which resulted in Hain himself being captured, should be the target of reprisal for the murder of Hain. But that Loyalist prisoner, Andrew Williamson, had actually been spying for Green while he was in Charleston. Other officers did not know that, but Green certainly was not going to execute his own spy. Now, Green wrote to General Washington, requesting approval to retaliate. Washington responded that Congress was considering the matter and urged Green to wait for Congress's decision. Congress investigated the hanging, even taking depositions from eyewitnesses. Members debated the issue of retaliation. Eventually, a committee sent a letter to General Green to investigate further and execute a British officer if Green determined that Haynes' execution was, quote, contrary to the laws of war. Colonel Balfour responded to Green's initial letter by arguing that his actions were based on Lord Cornwallis's general instructions to hang those who had accepted British commissions and then participated in the revolt. Of course, Hayne had never accepted a British commission, so that argument rang hollow. A few weeks after the hanging, British Colonel Lord Ralden boarded a ship for England. His ship, however, was attacked by French privateers, and he was taken prisoner. The idea of executing Lord Ralden in retaliation struck many as a fair bargain. Ralden was not just some innocent officer. He had participated in the decision to hang Isaac Hayne and was therefore a guilty party. The privateers who captured Ralden turned him over to the French Navy under Admiral de Grasse. Upon learning this, Congress sent an emissary to de Grasse demanding that Rawdon be turned over to answer for the hanging. Admiral de Grasse refused this demand and quickly shipped Rawdon to Paris so that he would not have to deal with this issue. French officials, agreeing that Rawdon should not be turned over to Americans, granted the officer parole and permitted him to return to England. Rawdon would eventually be exchanged for General Charles Scott of Virginia in the summer of 1782. British officials still feared that Americans might pick another officer as the subject of reprisal. That fall, the British managed to capture Colonel William Washington, the American commander's cousin. They also captured North Carolina Governor Thomas Burke. They transferred both men to Charleston, where they were held as prisoners, and the British let the Americans know that if the Americans executed any British officers, that these men would be executed in retaliation. The main reason that the British had hanged Hayne in the first place was the hope that it would have intimidated other men who had taken the oath of allegiance from rejoining the Patriot ranks. Instead, it had the opposite effect. As word circulated about what happened, recruits rushed to join the Patriot ranks. In the weeks following Hayne's death, Green's forces swelled to over 2,000 men. In the end, the Americans took no retaliation against British prisoners the matter dragged on for the remainder of the war. 
and Hain would be remembered as an American martyr. Next week, we're going to look at British officials trying to deal with a growing world war and an increasing isolation with the rest of Europe. Podcasters like Mike never know who will be inspired by their message. I'm Tracy Lawson, an author and historian. I once heard a podcaster comment, we rarely see history from a woman's point of view, and decided, hey, I'm a writer, I should do something about that. So I did. My novel, Answering Liberty's Call, Anna Stone's Daring Ride to Valley Forge, is based on a true story about my sixth great-grandmother and has been called a grand and rollicking revolutionary adventure. While on a solo horseback journey to Valley Forge with supplies for her soldier husband, Anna takes on the responsibility of delivering an urgent message to General Washington. But it's not long before a mysterious man is hot on her trail and trying to steal the letter. Can Anna outwit him and make it safely to the picket line? A version of Anna's story for elementary school kids called Revolutionary Anna is the first book in my Liberty Bells series for young readers. Liberty Bell's books feature female patriots who advanced the cause of liberty, and they're a great way to get kids hyped up about America 250, which is just around the corner. My books are available in print and ebook on Amazon. For listeners of the American Revolution podcast, I'm offering 15% off personalized signed copies of books ordered through my website, tracylawsonbooks.com. That's T-R-A-C-Y-L-A-W-S-O-N books.com. Use the promo code AMREVPODCAST. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show, part of the Airwave Media Network. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, John Celentano, and Michael Mulhern, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters Greg Pusak and 10 Crucial Days. I'm releasing this episode on December 24th, The Ten Crucial Days Involving George Washington began on December 25, 1776. So to learn more about this important moment, go to 10crucialdays.org. I also want to thank Christopher McLoggin and Ann Martin for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. As most of you know, I'm producing this podcast as a full-time job now, so your support is greatly appreciated. Also, as a reminder, if you can't support this podcast directly, You can still help out by making any of your Amazon purchases by first clicking on a book link on my blog or website. If you do that, even if you don't buy the book, I still get a commission on anything you purchase in that session. It's a great way to help out without spending any money that you weren't going to spend anyway. Thanks everyone for all of your support. As I already mentioned, I am releasing this episode on Christmas Eve, I hope that most of you don't have time to listen to it until later in the week because you're spending time with friends and family. I wish you all a wonderful holiday and all the best for the new year. Also, a reminder, our next live Zoom meeting will be in the new year on January 10th. Please join us for a great discussion. I will send the details, as always, to those on my mailing list. So this week, we talked about the execution of Isaac Hayne, which is not exactly a cheery story for this time of year, but I guess that happens when we just cover things chronologically. The memory of Isaac Hain remained in the public consciousness for many years after his death. There were paintings and books and even some plays about Hain and his execution that were created in the early 1800s. 
Haynes's body was removed to Jacksonboro, where he's buried in the Hain Family Cemetery, and there was a memorial set up for him there in 1929. His execution, as I said, really struck a nerve in the Carolinas, and it was remembered for generations. And we're talking about a place where there were hundreds of pretty outrageous murders and killings between Loyalists and Patriots during the war. Even so, Haynes's execution stood out. There was even some talk about holding General Cornwallis for trial for Haynes' death after Cornwallis's capture at Yorktown, although that idea was quickly abandoned. I should also mention there's a ghost story in Charleston that Hayne passed the home of his sister on the way to his execution. She called out to him to return, and he promised he would. Many people claim to hear the tramping of boots toward his sister's house and claim it is the ghost of Isaac Hayne. One of the other people I mentioned in this week's episode was Lord Ralden. I mentioned in the main show that France returned Ralden to Britain and that he was exchanged for General Scott in 1782. The Duke of Richmond attempted to censure Lord Ralden in the House of Lords for Ralden's part in the Hayne execution that same year, but the motion failed. Although the opposition wanted to be critical of him, he did find favor with the ministry and with the king, who made him a baron, in 1783. Ralden also became good friends with the Prince of Wales. He would rise to the rank of Major General in wars with France in the 1790s, and he became a full general, what we would call in America a four-star general, in 1803. Also like George Washington, Ralden would become a Grandmaster of the Freemasons. Ralden remained active in politics, He served in the Irish House of Commons, and later after his father died and he inherited the title of Earl of Moira, he served in the Irish House of Lords. He supported a number of Irish political reforms and opposed the union of Ireland with Britain in 1801. When it did, however, he sat in the British House of Lords under the title of Lord Hastings. And even before becoming a lord, there was a movement to make Ralden the Prime Minister of Britain, although it never went anywhere. In 1812, he became Governor-General of India and led the British through several wars there. My book recommendation is Martyr of the American Revolution, The Execution of Isaac Hayne, South Carolinian, by C.L. Bragg. This was first published in 2016. It's a pretty short book, less than 150 pages if you don't count the extensive endnotes and index. The book focuses exclusively on the events surrounding Hayne's execution, It also includes some really good appendices, which have transcripts of contemporary documents. The author, Chip Bragg, has written a number of good books about Carolina history, usually centering around the Revolution or the Civil War. His book, Martyr of the American Revolution, The Execution of Isaac Hayne, is available on Amazon in both paper and Kindle versions, and there's also a book you can borrow on archive.org. My online recommendation is for those of you non-readers out there, it's a YouTube video where Chip Bragg discusses his book in more detail. There's also a couple of older public domain books on archive.org, which I've listed in my blog entry for this episode. So there's plenty to read more. As always, you can find links on my blog and website. My question this week comes from Hugh Fawcett, who asks, Did Thomas Fawcett shoot General Edward Braddock after General Braddock killed Thomas Fawcett's brother, Joseph Fawcett, and is there any info on this event? Well, 
I hope everyone knows about the death of General Edward Braddock, an event I covered way back in Episode 6 of this podcast. Braddock led the British Army in 1755 from Virginia toward the French Fort Duquesne, which we know today as Pittsburgh. Native allies of the French ambushed the British before they could reach the fort. The story goes that the British tried to fight in lines, but were slaughtered by attackers who fought from behind trees, fighting Indian style. General Braddock was mortally wounded in the battle. There were many other young officers who went on to play larger roles in the Revolution. General Braddock's aide-de-camp, George Washington, was wounded, as was Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Gage. Also at the battle were future generals Charles Lee, Horatio Gates, and Adam Stephen. And among the wagoners were two teenagers named Daniel Morgan and Daniel Boone. General Braddock died four days after the battle. His men buried him on a road and then marched the army over his grave in order to hide its location. They feared the Indians might dig up the grave and desecrate his body. And the army then withdrew back to Virginia. Well, there were no questions raised about the death of General Braddock at the time. Everyone believed he was killed by a wound inflicted by the enemy. In 1825, 70 years after the battle, the newspaper the Pittsburgh Mercury published an article by an anonymous author under the pseudonym Ohio. The author claimed that during the battle, the British ordered the provincials to form a column. Instead of complying, many of the Virginians continued to fire from behind trees. General Braddock allegedly ran through one of these men with his sword, killing him for refusing to fall into rank. Later in the battle, Thomas Fawcett, the brother of the man Braddock had killed, took an opportunity to shoot the general, thus inflicting the fatal wound on Braddock. The story was then repeated in several other articles, helping to spread the story. Thomas Fawcett was apparently still living in western Pennsylvania in the 1820s, at least one witness later claimed that Fawcett had told him this story himself. Even if Fawcett did tell the story, he could have been telling it as a tall tale for fun. There's no good evidence that this really happened. And by good evidence, I mean someone who reported at the time that Braddock might have been killed by friendly fire. On the other hand, there's no contemporary account that states conclusively that Braddock was killed by the enemy. So, in the end, no one can say for certain who fired the fatal bullet. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.